view of the fact that Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross, offer your body as living sacrifice. So instead of being an individualistic consumer who's quite transient within pluralistic models of ministry, I wonder if we need to try and help our young people to grow up as servant-hearted Christians who are not just coming to youth group for what they want, but coming to be actually part of the body of Christ. They're part of the church now. So come and minister, not be ministered to. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast. I'm very excited to have you along with us today, and I'm very excited to have uh, two usual co-hosts, co-hosts now for this season. We've got Stu Crawshaw. How are you? Hello, Joel. It's very good to have you again. And it's good Tim, to be here. children's pastor of Soul Revival Church. Got it right that time. Yeah, thanks, mate. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks, mate. It's yeah. Excellent. Uh, you're pretty excited today, I think, because uh, we're talking about a, a, a preparatory approach, which is one of the things that we're talking about in terms of strategies to involve the youth. Because we talked about in the earliest episode that the the church does have an image problem with the youth, so mm. uh, you're going to bring us the preparatory approach today, which is quite exciting. Yeah, so we're starting when we're heading into the nineties today. Yeah. Um, is that your so favourite era? This is well, this is the era where I was I was growing up and I was a teenager. I think we've always got a bit of a nostalgic soft spot for that. Um, so I, I mean, I was a child in the eighties, um, and I wasn't around in the sixties or seventies at all. So um, yeah, I got to defer to Stu for his passion about the Jesus people. Um, uh, and Jesus music, and then his own experiences um, in the you know, late eighties, early nineties. Um, but yeah, in the the mid to late nineties is kind of where I can um, actually got something to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. You've got plenty of um, things to say. You, you were on the Chip Lunch podcast this week. Um, another. Uh, podcast that we do, and you were talking about your favorite dead Russian. Yeah, yeah, I've got a lot. Yeah, I've got a favorite. Every, everyone needs a favorite dead Russian. What's who's your favorite dead Russian, John? Uh, that's a good question. Well, uh, if you think about uh, football, there's a guy called Valery Lobanovsky who he created a lot of um, interesting uh, tactical advancements in the. I should get this right. I think it's the 70s and 80s, which developed into the uh, like also was part of the Dutch philosophy and stuff so that's probably my favorite russian at the moment i don't have a philosopher yet i am i'm working on it (laughs) (laughs) i'm reading more but i haven't got one yet um but the cool thing is that we yes we're talking about something out of the 90s now it's kind of we talked about 70s and 80s last episode but i was just um speaking of the 90s i just recently watched a documentary uh which i believe in australia is on binge but i think it might be on hbo in america but it's about um the woodstock 99 now, I think uh, you might be able to speak more about Woodstock 69, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was all of one year old at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel, like, I feel like what we've talked about in terms of the hippie movement and stuff, you would yeah, understand yeah, that a lot joking. more. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't realise there was also a Woodstock 94. Yeah, I think I they tried know. to restart the brand in the 90s, didn't they? Right. Because, <clears throat> I mean, so a quick overview of that documentary is that they, they, have, they even interview the... the guys that ran the festival even back in 69 and then but it was interesting that Woodstock 99 is a very different obviously cultural moment compared to the 60s Mm. and a lot of quite terrible things happened like riots and fires and a whole lot of other and they said that everyone was very very angry like that was the point is like the early 90s music like you've spoken about Nirvana and Pearl Jam there was still there was still an element of um, social movement about it. They were speaking about what the society was doing or what should be changing in society. But then they moved into the new metal wave by the time of around 99. And 
with bands like Limp Biscuit and Corn and I mean Rage Against the Machine are one of my favourite bands ever. But they were they were very they had a very different political stance to everyone else. But also there was just this um, wave of anger, and it just uh, it they said it was done on this humongous deserted airfield, and they had two stages at each end, and they said that like it just seemed to get worse and worse, and like water was the same cost as beer. Wow! Like and um the toilet facilities were terrible and it's just like basically sewerage. It's just like raw sewerage. It's just flooding the, the campgrounds and it just got worse and worse over the um, the weekend from Friday to Sunday. And then on Sunday night, the Red Hot Chili Peppers played. Yep. And they, um, the people in the crowd started tearing these large boards. Originally, they were, uh, during Limp Biscuit on the Saturday night, there was crowd surfing on top of these big wooden boards. And by Sunday, they had ripped them all off the towers that were there and set fires in them and made huge bonfires. And um, prior to their encore, the Woodstock people had told them, told Red Hot Chili Peppers, hey, can you calm the crowd down? Because this is getting pretty insane. And then Anthony Kiedis, the singer of um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, said, oh, yeah, 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 it's fine. And then they go out and played um, Jimi Hendrix's song, Fire. I forget what it's called. I think it's got fire in it. So basically just like amped the crowd up again. And it just got, okay, it was basically Lord of the Flies. Mm. After then, like they had to call in all the state troopers and they, they lost control. All the security people were like, we're out of here. We're too scared. And they just all left. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So it was interesting uh, look at the culture of that time where they were feeling like they were just ready to, like there was just so much anger. It moves from anger about how we they kind of felt about society until just we're just going to rebel against society really hardcore because we're just so full of hate now. So I um, don't know if that's how you felt in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, interesting, and this will play into what we talk about later, but there was a pluralisation going on in the 90s where there was all different um, subcultures going on and so you get this fracturing and so that kind of angry new metal stuff... I, Sure, I listened to some of it, but it wasn't the key thing that I was listening to. I was listening to a lot of skate punk. Um, so things like MXPX, Living End, Blink-182, The Offspring. Um, and there was, uh, a, I don't know, the, the tone of that was um, they were, you're dealing with some realities of life. Uh, certainly in The Offspring, I talked about on the Chip Lunch podcast, they've got some really interesting ethics in terms of some of it is quite hedonistic. Let's just go out and enjoy life and have a lot of fun. And then there's also a bit of a um, questioning about you know, um, guys that um, you know, abandon their families and kids and people who are lazy and don't get jobs. And So there's, there's also a bit of a family dynamic going on. Um, Interestingly, the uh, in the Woodstock and Woodstock Nine and the Offspring played on early in the in the weekend, and they put up um, like effigies of the Backstreet Boys and beat it with a baseball bat. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Just interesting. Sorry. Yeah. Keep, keep going. No, really, so. Just, so my experience of the nineties was that kind of that skate punk, which wasn't. Um, I well, I certainly didn't experience it as an angry, anger-filled music mm. thing. It was. It was a bit. It was fun, it was jovial, it was probably hedonistic. Um, like, we're just out having fun. Certainly those Californian bands was, you know, it was skating and surfing and just, you know, enjoying all the, the great things about life. Um, and so that was kind of my experience of this. Is there was a, a fun and a, a silliness. I mean, Blink-182 were famous for their <laughs> um, silliness and, um, you know, sometimes, like, you know, being rude and depraved, but just in a... 
in a, in a playful kind of way, not yeah, in an anger-filled mm. way. Mm. Um, and so that was kind of my experience of the, the 90s. Um, but I think part of that was because, yeah, yeah, there was this fracturing of subcultures. And so the, the new metal anger side of things wasn't something that I kind of got particularly into because there was plenty of other options mm. available to me. That's interesting because uh, you talk about being a playful thing. Um, then again, going back to the Woodstock documentary, they talked about how a lot of the anger was done because at that time it was very top down. Like it was very like the political parties are in control. Uh, they're going to fight the wars overseas that they want to fight or whatever. And um, it's interesting that maybe the anger had built up in a certain way that that was kind of a reaction to what that approach was. I don't know if you resonate with that, Stu. Or like yeah, yeah, I think so. I think I think that idea of um, the Gulf War and the the fall of the the um, Soviet Union, there was this sense that America is now the superpower, but then there was this inward-looking movement where people started to question America and question the West, and I think we're still living through the, that today as well, which is really interesting. And there's a lot of anger towards the institutions of our society still. I think it's interesting too that you talk about the politification because as well as you know the 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 metal and the and the punk, there's also hip hop and there's pop music. So there's some people just watching. Um, Backstreet Boys, as you said, and there's others listening to um, Britney Spears was oh, huge. Spears yeah, was like, so the whole pop yeah. music genre. Yeah, off. yeah. So that that wasn't a questioning movement at all. That was just a like let's have fun sort of mm. music. And then you've got um, you know hip hop and Black Eyed Peas, and and then then even within hip hop and rap music, there's edges to that. And I think I don't know if you guys noticed a similar kind of. Uh, difference within hip hop and rap music as, as with punk music. So there's that fun edge of punk music, and then there's the more angry side. Does, do you think that was the case with with hip hop and rap as well? Well, I think so. If you look at um, like the NWA stuff and mm-hmm. the LA riots and all yep. that kind of thing, that would make a lot of sense because, Does, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I don't know if in Australia we have felt that much anger. It seems that. Well, I mean, America's a much bigger country, so mm-hmm. there's a lot more going on. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I just wonder if we. Uh, have that in our society as much. I'm sure there's anger about certain things, mm. but I don't know if you... If you, you, think, you know Australian history a lot well, better well than I me. I think Australia vicariously imports a lot of the culture from America, mm. and so we we import a lot of that. The themes that are happening overseas come to Australia. So more recently with the, the Black Lives Matter movement, that has influenced uh, Australia and England and other countries too, but particularly... Australia with our sports people taking the knee in, in, in sports games and stuff like that. Um, there's been a, a, a real awareness and a, 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 a re-questioning of our, um, his, our colonial past and yeah. like how, how um, Aboriginal people have been treated really uh, poorly in Australia. So, but that, that, sort of, that conversation started in America and then came to Australia. So I think, uh, yeah, I think there, there is... Uh, yeah, it's interesting. There is politics in Australian mu- music. If you go back even to the 80s with um, Midnight Oil, Midnight like Oil. they were singing mm. about um, Indigenous yeah. uh, political issues back then and also other issues as well about uh, corp- corporate America and stuff like that. So there was an anger against um, what was happening environmentally in Australia with the um, damming of the Franklin River. So people were really upset about what we are doing to our environment. I remember in the 80s people were... The big thing wasn't plastic. The big thing was let's not cut down trees. So there was this big um, movement of stop cutting down trees in Tasmania. Uh, the anti-nuclear uh, war movement. So in the 60s, it was the anti-war movement. But yeah, there was anger. There's There's been this... Um, it's just interesting listening to you guys talk because there's been this interesting dynamic going on in youth culture over the last 50 years where there's, there is this desire for hedonistic 
fun and pleasure and ex- ex- youthful exuberance and a questioning of what has happened uh, in the past, but also an anger towards what's happening in the past. But interestingly, not only do we have the generation gap uh, between older people and younger people, uh, we've developed into intergeneration gaps. So each new phase of rock and roll music, for example, was defining itself against the adults, but also defining itself against what previous youth culture was as well. And you see that going into the 90s. So hip-hop will define itself against uh, you know, older expressions of hip-hop, for example. But then the other thing that's interesting is you get these... The, the generation gap becomes intergeneration gaps that are about... I think about five to ten years, maybe even five years, I think. Every five years there's almost a movement of change within young people... Um, changing the way they see themselves from the young people of the past. But then not only do you have intergeneration gaps, you have intra-generation gaps where the young people within a generation are seeing themselves different to the other young people. So Mm. hip-hop artists were very different to grunge artists and so Black Eyed Peas was really different to Limp Bizkit. So they had different issues and they would um, sometimes actually get angry at each other as other young people and it's interesting that it exploded into violence in Woodstock which is meant to bring all these different musical artists together. I mean, 1968, Woodstock had uh, um, African-American and white artists playing on the same same stage. So, you know, you have, um, um, you know, uh, that sort of coming together in 1968. But interestingly, in 1968, that was followed by the Ultimate Speedway concert in 1969, where there was an interesting explosion of anger at that concert too, which was similar to what happened in the 99 Woodstock concert, so Ultimo Speedway, um, uh, there was there were the security guards were actually they were bikies, the, weren't they? The bikies, yeah, they were Hell's Angels, and they were when Rolling Stones came onto the stage. It was a similar moment to the Green Day moment, where it, it just went out of control, and and one of the uh, Hell's Angels killed uh, one of the fans in the in the crowd. So the 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 band wasn't trying to hype it up; it was the obviously the security from the bikies and then you know all of a sudden rolling stones are getting taken away in a helicopter to escape this chaos so in a way um ultimo speedway was like if if woodstock was the high point of the hippie movement then ultimo speedway was like the death of the hippie movement and came in the same year as charles manson and the manson murders and so all of a sudden the hippie dream just seemed to evaporate and it's interesting you're talking about you know, 1999, at the end of the punk movement where there was a lot of fun and exuberance with bands like, um, you know, uh, even... And social commentary with bands like Pearl Jam and stuff. Mm. But then when you come to that anger in the 90s, that's really interesting, yeah. Yeah, um, it, and it's funny that we, we spoke last episode about the 70s and 80s, Stu, um, mm. and it's interesting that... I always find it so interesting with culture that, like, we talked about this last episode as well, is that how... Everything is a reaction to everything that happened beforehand. Mm. So it's interesting that maybe we can quickly have a look at the 70s and 80s to see how that's also happened in youth ministry. Do you want to just give us a quick review of the 70s and 80s that we talked about last week? Yeah, well, I think when you come to strategies of youth ministry, the the church is, as we said in a previous podcast in this season, the church is always a little bit behind the culture and they're watching the culture and then they're trying to create a strategy that catches up to where the culture's at. That seems to be, unfortunately... Uh, a bit of the history of youth ministry so i talked at an earlier podcast that in the uh, 70s there were the jesus people and they were creating i suppose a strategy of youth ministry that was really relevant to that hippie generation where they had coffee houses and they had um 
Christian rock and roll and stuff like that. Um, but I mentioned that my wife worked at um, a company where she met uh, a hippie from the, the 60s who was working in her company, and this guy was from Ireland. And to her surprise, he'd heard of the Jesus movement, and the hippies in Ireland were saying that, yeah, the Jesus people were kind of cool, but they were always trying to work out what we were doing, and by the time they'd worked out what we were doing, we'd moved on to the next thing. And if youth culture is changing every five years, then the church is a lot slower at change than that. So we talked about the 70s and 80s strategies of the what we're calling the cultural approach, or uh, there's other words for that, but basically to say let's try and see what the culture is doing and create a culturally relevant Christian youth ministry version of that culture. Um, so if we're going to see that young people in the 70s are going to coffee houses, let's start a youth group where we have games and activities and then in the coffee houses people get up and speak about what they think about things so let's do a christian version of that and have a christian talk uh, in the coffee houses they have coffee afterwards and sometimes things are a little bit stronger so <laughs> why don't we in the christian youth culture have cordial and chips <laughs> so that's kind of like a christian version of that but by the time the christians have actually implemented that youth ministry strategy in the middle 70s the and the late 70s the youth culture's already moved on so when i grew up in the early 80s we were listening to the Smiths and The Cure and um, I suppose late punk music as well because we were just a bit too young to be a part of the punk movement in the 70s. Uh, but we were listening to all this sort of music and our youth leaders were still uh, imbibing the, the hippie movement stuff. So our youth leaders were giving us Larry Norman records to listen to when we were listening to The Cure. So there was this kind of delay, I suppose. And then by the late 80s and early 90s, I think it had got so delayed i suppose the church's response that in our local church we hadn't moved on from the 70s we were still in that that same mold in the 80s uh, no guts no glory came along to try and modify the 70s model with an 80s model but um i think what you're getting is the church is constantly behind um, what's happening in youth culture and so by the 90s i think when when mark center writes an interesting book called the coming revolution of youth ministry he identifies the fact that the church is a bit out of date with regard to youth culture and he makes this really interesting observation that we're going to explore in the next few weeks, I think, which is what is the next strategy or strategies of youth ministry that are going to take place in this plurifying youth culture? Because once upon a time, you could do a youth group on a Friday night and all the teenagers would come along. But now you've got uh, kids listening to hip-hop, kids listening to Limp Biscuit, kids listening to Pearl Jam, there's all these different youth cultures. And so these intra-generation gaps have become inter-generation gaps and intra-generation gaps. It's quite confusing because the young people, um, there, I, I think there still is a generation gap between the ages, but now there's cultural gaps between teenagers themselves. So what, what Centre does next is he, he gets a few of his friends together in the 90s and he tries to think through what's happening in this plurifying youth culture. Plurifying just means the youth culture is becoming more um, diverse and plurifying into different youth cultures rather than our youth culture. And there was always a sense of that. Back in, the, back in Sydney in the 1960s, there were the kids who lived in Western Sydney and there were kids who lived on the beaches. And so those teenagers uh, were, were different to each other and they sometimes used to fight each other too. There was anger there. Uh, in places like England, there was the mods and the rockers. So the mods is where the Beatles came from early on, you might be familiar with the early Beatles, you know, driving, uh, you know, rocking around with suits and bob haircuts. But then there were these rockers who were still wearing leather jackets and 
kind of listening to Elvis. So, you know, there's always been this tension, I suppose. But in the 90s, it became so obvious to the church that we didn't have a strategy that dealt with pluralism. So what we're going to look at next is um, the church has already invented the homogeneous unit principle to try and at least identify that there's a generation gap. So they're, they're creating strategies for adults and strategies for teenagers. Now what? center is saying in the coming revolution of youth ministry in the early 90s is what's the next strategy so what what would be interesting to look at today is he writes a second book called the four views of youth ministry off the back of that and interestingly that book came out in the late 90s when when all this 99 woodstock stuff's going on so it'd be interesting for us to have a look at the culture what's happening at the time of the 90s and what the christian responses but I, I think you'll find that the christian response is still a decade behind what was happening in the 90s i think uh, but nevertheless it'll be interesting to look at each of those different four views because mark center gets four of his or three of his friends together and they all compare some of their different strategies and they interact with that it's a really good book to get and if you are listening to this podcast and you're enjoying going deeper you might want to buy the four views of youth ministry and have a read of it for yourself and let us know what you think as well but uh, today we're going to look at the first uh, one of those approaches I think we call the preparatory approach, which um, I think that's what we're going to look at next. But yeah, that's that's his, his way of bringing us up to date with how youth youth ministry sort of tried to keep up with youth culture. Mm, and bring us to the 90s. I, yeah. I thought it was cool. I remember you said that uh, when you were growing up, uh, an example of that pluralism was like the Walkman, yeah. which is when you're all sitting in the car listening to all different music as you're driving down yeah. to the beach, which is yeah. quite interesting that yeah. yeah you can and now you can pick the music that you want to listen to it's not yeah. just we just have one radio in the car yeah, you're picking right. the music how's um just before we get into the preparatory approach i'd just be interested in terms of that's when soul revival started yep at around 91 91 yeah. okay got to get yeah. that right <laughs> um uh, i was only five years old um <laughs> uh are you seeing? Are you picking that up in the culture at that time, Stu, or did you have to research it later to realise that it happened? Yeah, well, our, our early reflection was uh, we had, didn't have any formal biblical training or formal youth ministry training other than the fact that we had some really great people from YouthWorks who'd come out, which was called the Anglican Youth Department at the time. Sydney Anglican Church had a great ministry um, to us through that. And uh, the leader of Anglican uh, youth ministry was a guy called Tom Smith. He used to visit churches and you know equip young people. So we had a bit of that, but what what we felt was a bit of permission to try and do new things because we needed to start again at Gomer Anglican Church because our church had lost all its young people in the eighties. And so um, our initial observation was we're still doing seventies youth ministry model in the early or the late nineteen eighties, and that wasn't cutting it with our friends. So when my friends who were 18 were going and seeing a band called The Angels at Carrying Bar Inn and I was saying, hey, instead of going on Friday night to The Angels, do you want to come to our youth group on Friday night? Literally our youth group, even for 18-year-olds, was still playing 1970s youth group games and having chips and cordial and having a youth talk. So my friends would say, well, what are you doing on Friday night? And I'd say, oh, well, we're getting a lifesaver and putting it on a toothpick and passing it from person to person. And they go, oh, I think I might go down the pub. And, so then, and then you're like, am I ever going to see your face again? Am I ever going <laughs> to see your face again? That, and I, I never did see their face again because <laughs> they had that predictable response. But the, the yeah, the interesting thing for us was to start off with, we thought we weren't cool enough. So let's try and 
create a cool youth ministry. And we weren't very creative. And the only <laughs> thing we could think of was let's stop these games. Like, let's just hang out. And instead of having chips and cordial, let's just have a pizza and sit around a fire bin and talk about about Jesus. And it does feel very 90s. Well, I think it was, yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. We even got an old garage and someone let us use their garage. I, looking yeah. back, it's just the weirdest thing. But someone said, oh, you, can, you guys can meet in our garage because it was really hard to get teenagers to come to the church with a dusty Sunday school hall with faded kids posters from the 70s on the wall. Mm-hmm. Like, So we just went, let's just start again. So it was the grunge movement. So mm-hmm. one of the boys got four tins of paint from his dad's garage and i don't know if he asked him for it he just took them and we all just put all those four kids of care together and made a brown color and then painted this garage brown it was very grungy and we had a fire bin and we had an old wrecked pool table and and lounges we got off uh that people had discarded on the road for the council to come and pick up and so we we had to let off three or four cockroach bombs in this garage before we started and we put up this lamp and we loved it it was almost like a a, a restart that we were Which starting is what again kind of grunge was a little bit like it's too, very wasn't grunge, it? it's yeah. a very much a restart and a reaction to like hair metal and yeah, glam and all yeah, that very kind of thing. So. strip it all away and yeah you know, go back to basics yeah so i think in the beginning we thought we were being really cool by doing that but then none of the christian teenagers come even to that and little alone that no non-christian kids wanted to come so the first step was like let's at least cut loose from that old model of or strategy of youth ministry and now let's look for a new strategy and around the fire bin, we sat there with our Bibles and we hadn't been trained how to use the Bible. We are just sharing our favourite Bible verses. And we came across Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40, which says, love God with all your heart and love your neighbour as yourself. And for us, that was like, oh, it's a light bulb moment. Mm. Like, let's not just be token and relate to each other through an event like a youth night. Let's actually be brothers and sisters. Let's be friends. Like Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you my friends. Um, so we thought, why don't we actually put jesus first instead of second because at the time we were like trying to fit in our christian lifestyle around all the other things we wanted to do like study or work or hanging out with mates so we decided to make saturday night which was our most precious night of the week that was our party night let's party with jesus and each other and ask other people to come to that and ask the young crew to grow up into that so it was a really different model to the homogeneous unit principle because instead of i suppose trying to think carefully culturally about how do we start different youth groups for different kinds of teenagers we kind of just gave up on being culturally relevant at that moment and we thought well the bible's telling us just to 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 be christian first and relate as christians not as punks and hip-hop artists so we were going in a different direction to the four views of youth ministry which is trying to work out how do we work out how to reach the culture i mean in I think it's in four views of youth ministry. Mark Center says, short of a revival, culture, sorry, I'll start again. He says, culture is so strong that short of a revival, we need to just move with it. And the problem I had with that was you're going to be moving too slowly because you're not going to, by the time you've worked out what the culture is doing and create a Christian version of it, it's going to have moved on. And even if you do that, you're only going to reach a certain subset of young people. So we, I suppose we, we had a grunge attitude to that and went, let's just be, young christians so we were all in our early 20s and we just decided to live differently and that was the it was a different strategy that we could compare to the preparatory approach because i think the preparatory approach is still in how do we make the homogeneous unit principle work whereas we just discarded the homogeneous unit principle at that moment 
Okay, that's interesting. Is there a link? I think you mentioned it tenuously there before, but is there a link between the four views of youth ministry and the preparatory approach? Yeah, so the preparatory approach is one of the four views of youth ministry. Got it. Sorry. So that, that's a good clarifying question. Yeah, cool. So in the book, there's four models yep. that Mark Center includes his model too. So uh, we're going to talk about the preparatory approach today. There was also a missional approach, it was called that. And then there was a third one called the strategic approach. And then a fourth one called the inclusive congregational approach. And all those different ideas have had some influence on 2000s youth and young adults ministry. And the big thing we want to say in this podcast is your approach to the way you bring up young people actually changes the approach of your whole church. So some people might be thinking, what's the relevance of the shock absorber to me if I'm a senior minister or if I'm an adult in a church? Well, the reality is that the way you solve this problem of uh, the cultural disconnect between young people and older people, it will change the way you set up your whole church. So you'll see that what we talk about over the next few weeks with the strategies is the preparatory approach comes from a certain way of seeing the whole church and trying to bring young people up into that. And different approaches will have different adult expressions as well. Yeah, I think that's um, something really cool to base this, mm. what we were, said we were going to talk about, which we've kind of gone a little bit all over, over the place, but in a really enjoyable way. Tim, do you want to lay, lay down the law on, on the preparatory approach? <laughs> tell, tell us what are the main, the main parts of it. Yeah, so the preparatory approach, the chapter is written by a guy called Wesley Black. Uh, and so his uh, approach, his strategy is basically that we, <coughs> we grow up children and teenagers uh, to be and prepare them to be the church of tomorrow. Um, so we're preparing them to enter the church community proper. Uh, and so what his approach ends up looking like is probably similar to what a lot of youth groups look like, which is you're um, genuinely caring for these young teenagers, you're discipling them, you're opening the Bible with them, uh, you're having joyful fun and frivolity with them so you have some games um, and things that are welcoming uh, and inclusive you encourage them to be inviting their friends so we can talk about how it's related to no gus no glory and the the bead um, method of inviting friends along Uh, so there's a lot in his chapter that kind of resonates with a lot of uh, certainly what i've seen as i've visited churches about the way that we do youth uh, and children's ministry um takes Jesus seriously, it takes the faith of the young people seriously. Um, but the backbone of it is, um, on the name, pre- you're preparing them to enter the church proper. Um, and so one of the big pushbacks we're going to see from um, a shock absorber approach is that uh, we, we don't see children and teenagers as the church of tomorrow. Um, we're not preparing them to enter the church proper. They are the church of today and we want to find ways in which we can engage them uh, in the church of today and actually listen to them as the church, as genuine brothers and sisters today. So that, that's the basic framework of how he sets up his chapter. Yeah, cool. And Stu, you talked about just before how uh, your approach to youth and children affects how your church is going to um, uh, progress or mm. beca- what it's going to become. Yep. Um, I mean, when I hear, well, you're t- I don't know as much as Tim does, but when I hear that, it kind of feels like you're almost segregating children from adults and then saying you're not ready to be part of the church yet. Would you agree with that or am I being a little bit too harsh? No, and um, it fits really well with the homogeneous unit principle where you, uh, you, you've got a strategy which says the best way to disciple each age and stage is to separate them out. Um, and so 
using the homogeneous unit principle, which is based on the idea that uh, like will attract like. Uh, so the best way to um, minister and mission to a particular demographic is to silo that demographic off from other demographics, which might pollute and make that a little bit harder. Um, because people will go, oh, they're, they're just like me. Maybe I'll go and join that group. Uh, so it, it fits well with that model because you're taking out the teenagers and you're saying, okay, just let's just minister just the teenagers. Um, and so they become a homogeneous unit principle, um, which says this is the unit that we're going to minister to. Um, and then it fits really well with uh, developmental psychology, a lot of teaching pedagogy um, as well, which is, you know, you're, you're teaching according to age and stage. Um, so um, Piaget, if anyone's studying educational psychology, um, Piaget is really big here. Um, and his idea was that you can develop people by teaching them at the stage that they're at. Um, so you're focusing on that. So you can use age-appropriate language, you can use age-appropriate metaphors, um, use you know, cultural commentary, uh, and all of that works really well because you can target teenagers very particularly. Um, but you're doing that, yes, as you say, by separating them out. Mm. Um, and so the proponents of that view will say it's, it's a lot better missionally, it's a lot better discipleship-wise to actually take the teenagers out of the larger congregation. Um, and then if you have a large youth group, um, you can split that down even further. So you might have a year seven, eight youth group. You might have a year nine, 10 youth group. You're living 11 and 12. Um, and part of the reason for doing that is, again, this homogeneous unit principle, the mm. age and stage approach, which says by actually separating them out, um, we're actually able to target them better. Um, so there's some really great, um, well-intentioned uh, methodology that's trying to go there. Like we actually genuinely want to see disciples of our teenagers, mm -hmm. uh, we want them to be able to invite their friends and have them come to a place where they're enjoying themselves and they're um, feeling valued. Um, but the separation out from others does create some um, unforeseen circumstances, maybe, um, where you act by separating them out from the larger congregation, partly you, you're intentionally saying in this approach, they're not yet the church of today. We're, we're getting them ready to be. Uh, so it takes them away from the more mature congregation. Um, and also one of the things that I want to say as someone who's passionate about intergenerational ministry, you're actually robbing the older generation of the value of their younger brothers and sisters as well. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. There's that uh, show on ABC where they, they um, have take, they take preschoolers to mm. um, the uh, aged care homes. Sorry, I was trying to make the right word. Didn't want to exclude anyone. <laughs> um, and, they, and how much value it gives to them. So that makes a lot of sense across the church. So what you're saying is that the preparatory model fits very well in existing model of homogeneous unit principle. Um, I think that we would all probably disagree with that. It's probably not the approach that we would take. Why, why is it important? Uh, you've already said a couple of things, but I'd really like to dig into that a little bit more. Why is it important that uh, we see the children as the church of today not just tomorrow why why would you guys say that's really important to do that uh so i mean partly theological okay. um so we believe that's what christ has actually called us to and when jesus brings a child into the midst and says the kingdom belongs to such as these um and those who want to enter the kingdom of heaven needs to become like a child um and so there are certain things and then as we talked about a couple of episodes ago on the theological foundations of an intergenerational approach um, right throughout the whole scriptures, you've got this consistent story where children and teenagers are part of the whole people of God. 
Um, and so we're trying to honour that um, and we want to genuinely listen to that. So there's a theological foundation, which is um, as people who want to be reformed, evangelical, grounded in the scriptures, that's where we start. Um, that's absolutely the foundations of um, why we would do an approach that actually tried to bring the generations in together. Um, and then what the Bible affirms, I think we can also we see confirmed in other um, social sciences and other approaches. So when we look at developmental psychology, um, there's... Uh, other approaches from Piaget, Vygotsky, uh, my favourite dead Russian, um, <laughs> and people that come out of that. So the, the socio-cultural theorists, um, one of the big insights that they have is that it's by hanging out with people who are unlike yourself that actually you grow. Um, and so as it comes to the church, when it comes to faith developments, we, we want to see children and teenagers and senior saints and middle-aged adults we want them all to be growing as disciples of Jesus. Um, what we see affirmed in the Bible and then confirmed by these social sciences is actually it's by hanging out with people who are unlike yourself, which actually fosters that growth. Um, and so for the sake of the discipleship of our teenagers and our children, um, you'll consistently hear us say uh, on the Chuck Absorber, yes, there's a great place for peer expressions of faith where we're not anti children's ministry and youth ministry, but we want to continue to find ways in where the generations can come together uh, because that, that itself is also formative. Um, yeah. Well, I think this uh, podcast is quite intergenerational. We've got quite a few generations represented here. Um, Stu, would you agree with what um, Tim was saying? I'm, I think the answer is yes, but I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to hear you expand on it, uh, why you agree. Yeah, I, thi- I think it's interesting that... Uh, it's like Wesley Black with the preparatory approach is working within the known. And so he hasn't stepped outside of the homogeneous unit principle and he sees the homogeneous unit principle and he looks at it and he goes, well, how do we make that work better? Well, let's actually really try and define the fact that young people are different to adults and let's make that explicit in our approach and then let's try and take that into account. And the way he's defined that is saying, well, young people are church of the future. We want them to grow up with certain theological values but also uh, implicit in that is cultural values so there's this implicit understanding not necessarily explicit saying we expect you to live like us but it's implicit that you will grow up to have the same structures as us you'll have the same kinds of service structures and same strategies really so we want you to come and be like us but uh, there's two things going on there the first thing is i think it's um it is a loving response because there are perceived needs of young people that are being met by that because there's this understanding that young people don't want to hang out with older people and they want to be with people their age. And I hear a lot of parents actually saying things like, uh, we're looking for a church where there's a youth group where my young person can fit in. And so the idea, that's a very preparatory approach way of thinking about things. Oh, I'm looking for a church that has, like, for example, someone might come to Soul Revival and go, oh, we, don't, we notice that you don't have any... Uh, young young guys in year nine at your church we can't really come to your church because we're looking for a youth group where our young our young year nine son will fit in and so there's this perceived need that young people need to have a group of people to be friends with them who are the same age and exactly the same even the same year group at school and that's actually a perceived need that comes from a cultural reality that we've already discussed because there's these intergeneration gaps and intra-generation gaps and even if parents aren't aware of those terms they'll still be thinking in those categories it's sort of like well my young person listens to 
you know, my young person is a surfer. They like surfing and they like hanging out with other surfers and they're in year nine. So I need a youth group with year nine surfers so that my young person can fit in. And actually they came to the youth group and there was nobody like them and they came home and said, oh, I don't really want to go to that youth group. So the perceived need is that young people need some friends like them. And we've created that uh, in our culture over the last 30 or 40 years from the generation gap in the 60s right up until now. This has been the cultural narrative, the cultural moment that we've lived in which is let's hang out in like groups. But as Tim says, there's a lot of benefit in actually breaking out of those perceived needs to actually engage with real needs. And what are people's real needs? Well, their real need is to meet Jesus and to actually understand that he's going to transform their thinking. And we love to keep going back to Romans 12 in this podcast where Paul says in Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. That is holy and pleasing God. That is your spiritual act of worship. And then he goes on and says, be, uh, be transformed. Uh, I, I, I can't get the exact words in my head this morning. Tim might look it up while I'm saying this, uh, the, the actual verse. But be transformed in your thinking so that you don't think like the world anymore, but you think like the gospel. So I think the gospel actually challenges those perceived needs and encourages us to start thinking differently as Christians. So uh, did you have a chance yeah, to look that so up while I was just in So Romans, Romans 12? 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. What I really like about that in terms of this conversation as well is he goes straight on to then talk about the body of Christ. Yeah, that's right. And talks yeah. about how just each of us has one body with many members. These members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Um, and if your um, theology and your ecclesiology, as it certainly does for us as Anglicans, uh, includes children and young people in the body of Christ. Yeah, they are genuine part of the covenant community um, in the language we would use, um, then they they belong to the senior saints. They, they belong to the middle-aged, and middle-aged uh, belong to the young adults who belong to the teenagers and the children and the senior saints. And so when we end up with some sort of preparatory approach where the, the children and the teenagers are removed from the, um, the church, the church proper, um, and you have to sort of graduate into the church, you're actually failing to express here this one body you mm. actually removed the blessing that God has intended for one members of the body to the other. Um, so again, uh, we'll, we'll look at this particularly um, in a couple of weeks' time we look at inclusive congregational approach. That approach will go the other way and say you should kill off all of your children's and youth ministry. Um, that's not our approach. Um, there are great places where you can have peer relationships mm. and express those really well. Um but if we're not finding ways in our church to express the one-bodiness, to actually mm. help the members to feed into each other, um, then we're actually missing something beautiful that God intends for our churches, for the senior saints to speak into the teenagers, for the children to speak into the young adults' lives, um, which, which is how God has designed the church to be. And what I think is fascinating about that, Tim, is no, don't be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world. The whole point of youth ministry over the last 50 years is to try and conform to the pattern of the world. Yeah. So mm. I'm like, oh, hang on. So I think in the early 90s, we came across that that passage and went, yeah, let's be more like a body rather than let's breaking up into our individual parts. So we started trying to work out how we make connections between different groups rather than create a group for the different groups. 
So we were starting to explore intergenerational ministry in the 90s by saying, let's get, interestingly, intergenerational ministry starts by trying to overcome the intergeneration gaps and the intra-generation gaps. So trying to say, look, as a young adult, we're going to be a bit older than the teenagers. They're going to be into different things than us. They're actually a different category and they're not going to want to hang out with us. But let's try and start doing that. And then when we look at people our age, even within our generation, we've got surfers and we've got different kinds of people our age. But instead of trying to create a different youth ministry approach to each of the different categories, let's actually be Christian and let's not be conformed to the pattern of the world, which is to plurify. Let's actually bring a nexus together and let's bring everyone together in a place where we can have a space where people who are different can relate to each other through Christ. And that's why we used to read the Bible every week on a Saturday night, which was quite unusual at the time for young adults to get together socially and read the Bible together outside of church activities. So remember that Soul Revival in the early days was not a formal ministry of the church. The Soul Revival youth leaders were actually formally leading on Friday night in the youth group and choosing to spend their social time with each other on a Saturday night to read the Bible together. And that's that's the core idea of Soul Revival, that we... We, we don't have this distinction between the sacred and the secular, that we live in the sacred spaces of church activities and then we do our fun stuff outside of that with our sec. What would it look like if we actually read the Bible in those secular spaces? Like we go to a movie and have a coffee before we go see a movie, let's read the Bible. Or we're in a pub, let's have a read of the Bible. Or we're just about to go for a surf, let's have a pray before we go into the water. And then when we get out the back, let's talk about Jesus as well as other stuff that we talk about. And all of a sudden that, became really interesting because when i was growing up in the 80s we'd talk about the secular activities when we came into those sacred spaces of the church gathering but now we were actually in the secular spaces talking about these sacred activities or and by the way the the term sacred and secular is just what some people use sometimes to describe how we um, compartmentalize our life to church activities and discipleship and and then our just our time off we just choose how to do it where we want and what was really confronting to people in the 90s was we weren't trying to create a christian version of the world and conform to the pattern of the world we were trying to be a body and be that body in all the spaces of our life and that's why we started um, being really interesting to non-christians because we just would talk about jesus in our everyday life like we talk about the latest band we were listening to so one of my friends might be saying oh i like limp biscuit and and I'd say, well, I still like Pearl Jam. And he's like, well, you're a bit old-fashioned because that's five years ago. And I'm like, you know, we talk about that and have a laugh about it. And in the same casual way, we were now saying, well, I'm a Christian. And I'm not a Christian. And we talk about why we weren't. And it just normalized the conversation because we were able to talk about Jesus in, in these places where people didn't used to talk about Jesus. So, so I think uh, the preparatory approach too, the, the other thing I'd like to say about that is I don't think it, um, embraces how angry young people were at older people in, in the late 90s, like we were talking about from the 99 Woodstock event. Young people were really angry at older people. So there's, there's an assumption in the preparatory approach that young people will go along with the narrative. And, you know, the, the adults say, right, we're going to run a youth ministry model and a kids model that assumes the young people will participate in this and then they'll come out the other end of this model in in five years time at the end of high school like and us. become like us mm. you know mm. uh but the reality is that 
a lot of people don't listen to young people and they weren't hearing that the young people didn't want to live like them and were rejecting their culture. Not only were they rejecting the culture of the adults, they were rejecting the culture of the teenagers of five years before them. So there's this um, misunderstanding of how quickly culture is changing and how angry young people are. So, I mean, the result of the preparatory approach at Gyne Anglican Church, which is what the model we were using at Gyne Anglican in the 80s, was all the young people left. So they were being brought up to be the future of Gyne Anglican Church, but they left the church. And that's why we started Soul Revival and looked for a different approach because I think at the, at the core of it is not just the preparatory re- approach was struggling, but the, ho- the whole homogeneous unit principle itself was starting to break in the 90s. It was becoming too plurified and it was almost, I think, becoming impossible to continue to keep up with culture and create Christian versions of it in homogeneous units so our encouragement to parents who come and say oh there's nobody like my year nine boy who surfs at the church we, we would encourage parents to think a bit differently and go well is that what what a youth ministry is supposed to be doing like what what if youth ministry was different to what you expect so you are expecting us to have a preparatory approach to your young person but what if we had a different approach and we start a conversation with parents around what is youth ministry it's interesting um, how the homogeneous unit principle, which was well-intentioned at the start, has, when it came up against culture, continually purifying, that it's mm-hmm. continually to break it down. If you're, you're trying to slice and dice mm-hmm. everything in your community down to, like, the the surfer year nine boy that likes, I don't know, playing soccer as well kind of thing. Like, it, it's just, at what point do you stop? That's where I, I kind of feel like. And But then, as you're saying, that, that is it, the Romans passage said, if we are allowing Jesus to transform our mind and renew our mind mm. first, then we go, well, then how do we chat to people about what what's going Here's on? The, like, you know, if you can't get a 15-year-old Anglo kid who loves surfing but hates computer games to talk to a 15-year-old Anglo kid who loves computer games but hates surfing, <laughs> like if you can't get those two in the same room and enjoying Jesus together um, because they both happen to be Christians as well, you know, what hope is there to include the 15-year-old non-Anglo kid? Um, what hope is there for them to talk to a 25-year-old uh, Anglo? Like, there's, uh, so that as you, we continue to live in a pluralistic and increasingly multicultural um, uh, suburb, you know, and, and you know, Southern Shire is, is not as multicultural as many other areas of mm. Sydney, um, but if, if we can't, um, say, no, no, we're gathering together because of Jesus uh, and it's great that you have different preferences on all these different things. But the things that binds us is that we are reconciled to God, each and every one of us, and therefore we're reconciled to each other. Um, that's going to be the hope for the, the mission um, and also the discipleship that we can actually be a church together. So we're expressing that one bodiness um, in that, Stu. Yeah, I, I think I think what's really interesting there, Tim, is... it. it kind of reminds me of a metaphor I think of sometimes of a stir fry like when you think of a stir I, I love stir fry <laughs> and I love I love the preparation of a stir fry so you get your carrots and you cut your carrots up and there they are on the chopping board and then you cut up your other ingredients and they're all over the place and they're all in their little sections you've got your, your you know your garlic and your, your sauces and whatever and the whole beauty of the stir fry is when you take all these individual ingredients and you put them all together and you get this incredible explosion of flavour. And that's what I think we're missing in the homogeneous unit principle and the preparatory approach, the explosion of flavour when you bring differences together. So, you know, just last night I rang my friend um, Isaac in Brewarrina 
because in Sydney at the moment we're concerned about COVID, but we're also concerned now that COVID has gone beyond Sydney and now it's out into the regions. And there's a, a, a large Aboriginal population out in northwestern New South Wales that is very vulnerable to COVID. And because I've been friends with Isaac for 20 years, I just rang him to say, what's, what's going down? How, are you guys going okay? And he was sharing with me how the community in Brewarna is is feeling towards COVID. Now, Isaac and I grew up in completely different worlds. Mm. Um, as an Indigenous young person and as an Anglo young person, we would have been brought up in our, our worlds. But when we've come together, there's a, there's a flavour to that relationship that I think is really awesome. And I think we're kind of ripping our young people off if we just use a preparatory approach because we're not helping them to stretch their spiritual muscles to get used to talking to people who are different. And as Tim said, if they can't even talk to another Anglo kid who has a different sporting interest, how are they going to enjoy a relationship with a Christian who is of a different culture? And so rather than being a, an aged and a staged ministry, Soul Revival has put in place the shock absorber, which is all age and all stage. And that stir-fry analogy, I think, is a good one because it sort of means that at the beginning it sort of doesn't look like a carrot's necessarily going to go along with a piece of ginger. Like They look like two completely different things. But when you put them together with a piece of chicken and a bit of soy sauce, oh, my goodness, it's <laughs> awesome. And so I think it's about delighting people with this approach rather than saying, oh, that's not a good approach or this is not a good approach and having some kind of argument. It's more about living out the gospel and living out the idea of what what is in the bible because uh really in, in our churches now there there is this idea that um young people are going to tell us what they want to do and we're going to help them to grow up to be a christian in the ways that they want to so in a, in a sense parents are listening to their kids when the kids are saying oh look i don't want to go to youth group on friday night i'm already doing band i'm doing swimming i'm doing soccer i'm doing tutoring and i'm going to a christian school anyway why would i want to go to a youth group on a friday night from a preparatory point of view it seems like well if if the kid goes to a christian school for example which not all kids do but if my child goes to a christian school then they're that's preparing them to be a christian adult and so if they then say they don't really want to go to youth group on a friday night because the kids there aren't like them or if they want to go to a, a ch another church's youth group because there's more christian surfers in that other youth group and i think i'm doing them a favor by meeting their perceived needs there the danger is that their real need is that they need a community to be a, well first of all they need jesus and then they need to be part of a, a community that reads the bible together that goes for a longer period of time than just for the five years while they're at high school so if the church sorry if their school christian school is meeting their preparatory needs of bringing them up to be a christian adult problem is that when they turn 18 they'll leave that community and they won't be part of that community anymore so I think the byproduct of the preparatory approach is, unfortunately, the shadow of it is that it does create individualistic, consumeristic, transient Christians who see uh, ministry as ministry to them personally to help them to grow up to become a, a Christian who then chooses between all the different options of growing up as a Christian and then is quite transient because they move around um, based on what their own perceived needs are. But then their real need is, I feel, that they need to change their theological understanding a little bit. I mean, the preparatory approach is underpinned by, I think, underpinned by the homogeneous unit principle, which is underpinned by the incarnational theological approach that was developed in the 50s, which says uh, Jesus 
came and lived amongst us. He incarnate and became a, a man. He became a Jew to the Jews. So just like Jesus became a Jew to the Jew, let's make a youth ministry of surfers to surfers and let's make a youth ministry of hip-hop fans to hip-hop fans. And and realistically, I actually don't see it that way because I think when Jesus actually goes and ministers to the culture, he speaks into the culture. He doesn't try and imbibe the culture. And he actually challenges it even within his discipleship group. So within his discipleship group, he has Matthew the tax collector who has capitulated with the Romans and he has Simon the zealot who is fighting against the Romans and he puts them both into his group. And here's your your two different kinds of people who normally would... He doesn't design a ministry to zealots and design a ministry to, to tax collectors. He brings them together and says that actually uh, my atonement, my sacrifice for you on the cross is going to be so profound that you are going to be reconciled to each other despite your cultural differences. And that's why I love Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40 because it's love God and love others. And when you ask the question, who are the others that I'm supposed to love? It's everybody. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, not just the neighbors you choose. So I do really think in this moment of plurification, we need a model of youth ministry that is more of a stir fry that helps to bring all those different ingredients together to be enjoyable and delightful because that brings glory to God because people step back and go, wow, what's what's brought that year nine surfer together with that, um, you know, that kid that likes computer games? How, how did that happen? Because they normally wouldn't hang out with each other. So I, I, I still struggle to work out how we communicate that to people who are imbibing the homogeneous unit principle in their day-to-day lives. It's just it's just cultural common sense to follow the homogeneous unit principle. But to actually change people's thinking and go, yes, Jesus did incarnate, but is that a model of ministry? I don't think I don't think it necessarily is, because that's not what Paul says in Romans twelve. He says the model he says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, in view of the fact that Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross offer your body as a living sacrifice. So instead of being an individualistic consumer who is quite transient within pluralistic models of ministry, I wonder if we need to try and help our young people to grow up as servant-hearted Christians who are not just coming to youth group for what they want, but coming to be actually part of the body of Christ. They're part of the church now. So come and minister, not be ministered to. Because preparatory approach Older people minister to young people to prepare them for ministry. But if we actually give our young people the idea that come to a youth group and there's no other year nine surfers, great. Come and minister to all the people who are there and and see if you can be like, Jesus sacrificed his life for you on the cross. Maybe you could be a living sacrifice by not necessarily coming to have your perceived needs met, but coming to serve other people. So you become, you move from being a consumer to a servant. And that means you move from being very individualistic in your thinking to becoming more of a member of the family of God, the people of God, and reconciled to other people. And then instead of being so transient where you move around if the church isn't meeting your needs, you actually become more stable. And the result is helping young people to become more thoroughly equipped for uh, a changing world that is becoming scarier and scarier. And they need to understand that that Jesus is their anchor, not necessarily a cultural form that they can relate to Jesus through. Yeah, that's pretty profound, man. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, the thing that I always get from you and I have since the, we've been doing these Shock Absorber podcasts is just 
hell. We're not just reconciled to God, we're reconciled to each other. Mm. So and then how do we express that? And I think you really captured that really, really well. Mm. Um, Tim, there was just a couple of other, and I've just got to refer to the run sheet to make sure we, we, <laughs> we, we hit all the points. Um, you just ma- made a mention about the preparatory approach and the bead method. Mm. Um, I just wanted you to expand on that just so people understood what you meant by that. Yeah, so if you go back to last week's episode, we talked about uh, No Guts, No Glory, and the approach to mission that they encouraged was this bead approach. Uh, so in contrast to the funnel where you, you might throw up, you, know, you might have a band night or a big games night where you hope you know, tons of kids come and some of them will filter down into the growing depths of discipleship. Um, you've actually, the No Guts, No Glory was um, trying to get rid of the sort of the bait and switch of that type of ministry but to say no no invite kids one-on-one invite your friend to come to this discipleship group uh, and to say um, you know I'd love you to come and and visit my youth group we sit around we read the bible um, we're taking we take Jesus seriously um, and I'd love you to take Jesus seriously as well so again there's a sort of a a really honoring of that in wanting to be transparent uh, wanting to be uh, encouraging and explicit about what you're up to as a church which I really honor I think that's a great thing to be doing Um, but the, one of the comments about the, the bead method is, uh, and actually Chap Clark, who we'll talk about next week in the missional approach, uh, his um, criticism or critique, I suppose, of, the, of Wesley Black's chapter in the four uh, views is that all, not all you, one of the deficiencies of just the bead method type model is you invite your friends who are also just like you. Um, and so you you can grow your church and your youth group slowly, but it's probably going to grow um, with the same types of people. So if I'm a quiet, shy, reserved kid, um, I'm probably at school hanging out with quiet, shy, reserved kids. Uh, and so I'll even be inviting them to come to church, and some of them might. Praise God, that's awesome. Um, but it means that uh, that's kind of the, the limits of the mission that you are able to achieve with that kind of bead mm. method. Um, and so one of the things we'll talk about next week is Chap Clark's missional approach um, where we're actually, yes, we want our friends to come to know Jesus. Of course we do. Um, but how do we get a youth group that is made up of you know, a particular demographic to actually be open and welcoming and missional, intentionally inviting those who are unlike the people already in that group. Embrace difference, as Embrace you were difference. saying. Yeah, mm. that's right. Um, and so there's a limitation to the bead method um, in which how do you break out of just inviting people who are already like yourself and that you already hang out with? Yeah, I found that really interesting because I think that um, I personally have only been in Soul Revival way of doing things um, and I find it that the amount of I've learned from different people that are different from me, like I would say that you and Tim and yourself and myself are probably pretty different people but and even to Stu like in terms of age or even um, what we're interested in but Mm -hmm. to learn to be able to learn from other Christians with the older or even younger like you're saying is um, something that is extremely valuable and I haven't realized the value of that until when we start kind of articulating it like we are now Um, we've kind of gone through this podcast um, looking at uh, particularly the preparatory approach and um, we've kind of uh, compared that to the shock absorber approach. Um, we've talked about how uh, children are children and youth are the church of today, not tomorrow, not just tomorrow. I wanted to get that right. But I thought it'd be really cool just to wrap it up. If you guys could talk about how 
that has actually been something for you in your ministry. Um, Tim, you're a children's pastor, and, t- and Stu, you've been in ministry for ages. Mm. Where have you seen that um, a younger person, maybe even like a very like a lot a lot younger than you, has actually influenced the way you've done your ministry and how um, that has really garnered your um, or strengthened your desire for the intergenerational model. I think that would be really cool to wrap it up. If you, do you want to go first, Tim? Yeah, I, I might share someone else's story um, from our church. Okay. So we've got um, a lady in our church, Suze, um, and she is on our chill teams and we have a strategy for children's ministry on Saturday and Sundays where we, in trying to invite every safe adult to have a relationship with the children in the children's program, um, and so she is a chill leader. She comes in and the entire job description for a chill leader is to be a friend of kids. And so she comes in and she is a friend of the kids. But one of the things that I've got Suze to do uh, the last few times that she's come and helped me on a Sunday morning is to get a small group together and to help them pray. Um, and we do sort of creative things. I have a, a deck of UNO cards and you, know, you pull a card out at random and if you pe- pull out a red card, you've got to yeah, you say a, a thank you prayer. And if you pull out a blue card, you say, a, please God help me to something prayer, like those kind of things. So it's, there's a bit of creativity and fun. Um, but one of the things I get her to do is to sit with just a small group and to do that. Um, and then we rotate groups around so everyone gets a chance. So during those couple of Sunday mornings, we've done that. Uh, Suze has got to hang out with these little kids um, and have them pray with her and, and help to sh- shape them. Uh, and every time we've done that, I can just see the way Suze leaves Sunday morning, she is glowing. She's just buzzing. <laughs> she just loves, she has not been the one, the elder, to input down to them, though she very much could be. She's actually just sitting there and allowing them to lead themselves in prayer and to pray. And all she's doing is being a friend with them and sitting as a sister in Christ who also loves Jesus um, and helping them to pray. Uh, and it's really lovely that she gets ministered to by these infants and primary school kids because she is witnessing them pray. She's witnessing them express faith. Uh, she's helping them to learn what it means to say sorry, uh, to be trusting God for forgiveness, to be asking God for good things because he's a good, good father who loves to give us good things. Um, you know, all, she gets to experience all of that. Um, and you can just see it on her face when she uh, walks out of that room that she's just had a really great morning being ministered to by the younger generation. I just think that's a really great picture of... Um, what we're potentially robbing people of um, if we separate the ages to an extent where uh, normally Suze would not hang out with children. She's not a children's leader, she's, mm. um, but she's just there as a friend. Mm. Um, but she gets to experience those, those intergenerational discipleship um, from a, a bottom-up kind of way. So, so, that was really so those thing. young kids, sorry, were you say they were primary-aged? Uh, infants and primary. So she, uh, we're hanging out with the year twos to year sixes in that particular group. Yeah, and how old approximately is Suze? Oh, I wouldn't want to guess. <laughs> oh, okay. She, she has adult children. Yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> so above 20, we'll say. She is above 20. <laughs> she is, yes. Yeah. Um, Stu, did you have an example you wanted to say? Yeah, I think one of, one of the abiding problems we have in the homogeneous unit principle is I think we've created a culture amongst Christians in the West where Christians come to church and and relate to aspects of church that they think is for them. So uh, people will look for a church service that that is for their generation, their age, for them. And, and sometimes music can be a really divisive part of that. So people who like traditional hymns and express their faith through more of a traditional Christian approach 
will actually probably stay away from some church services with that has drums and guitars. Likewise, uh, younger people who like drums and guitars will probably stay away from traditional services because they don't like the hymns. So music has actually become quite a divisive element in our gatherings and we've tried to plurify our approach to have music for different tastes. And um, I, I, I constantly have people say to me things like, oh, it's great that you did that ministry at church. But that, that part of the ministry is not for me, so I kind of tuned out of that because this I wait for this part, which is for me. Um, but I remember when I was growing up and I used to think to myself, if I had any say in this church, our, our Christian music would be punk music. Like I was just <laughs> reckon it would be unreal to have, you know, um, to convert the hoodoo gurus and have them come and be our worship band <laughs> at church. That would be just ideal for me. I love rock and roll. And what I find quite ironic that as as I've become now a senior pastor, I suppose I do have a bit more authority to be able to, to say what I think the church music should be. And I wanted to share an example of how young people have influenced me. And uh, that was that one of my very good friends, Jimmy Ellicant, who <laughs> is, oh, I don't know, he's probably 20 years younger than me. And he grew up in my youth group and then he's become a, um, you know, an adult leader in the church and then he became one of the music leaders. He's now subsequently moved over to Canada and he's got a really successful... Uh, music career over in Canada and he's going to church over there. He's just met someone too and they've just got engaged, which engaged, I'm very excited yeah. about. So, Jimmy, if you are watching, I'm, I miss Congrats. you a lot. Congrats. <laughs> but anyway, um, the reason I raised Jimmy as an example is he's this uh, punk fan from the late 80s, early 90s who would love, you know, grunge music in church or punk music. And, and then I'm in a music meeting as the senior pastor and I'm with the music team and I'm like, right, what sort of instruments are we going to play in our in our brand new church plant this is our chance to reinvent music and jimmy goes well i've always wanted to play um ukulele <laughs> and i can't think of a worse instrument in the whole world a ukulele you're kidding me and then um and then and then to make it even worse he goes and you know what else we need we need banjos I'm like, a banjo and he's and i'm looking at him and go, are you kidding me like you can have the loudest rock music in the whole world right now and he's like i think we really should go down this folk music you know <laughs> angle this was really popular 10 years ago mm. when we first started and i just swallowed my preference and said rather than trying to argue for well actually my generation would really like rock and roll i remember thinking well okay let's let's go for that and i'm so glad i did that i didn't argue with him and try and stop the banjo and the ukulele because to my surprise the stuff they were putting out with a banjo, ukulele, acoustic guitar, uh, you know, people say, it was delightful. So I think we rob ourselves of that delight of the stir fry if we pick and choose the ingredients too much. And my encouragement is let's go with a recipe rather than picking and choosing the ingredients. And the recipe is given to us in the Word of God, which is we are a body. And allow the parts of the body to influence the flavor of the whole rather than you trying to make everything taste like a carrot. Because a stir fry is not a big bunch of carrots on a plate. Like, <laughs> I might like carrots, but unless we have the ginger and the, and the soy sauce, it's not going to taste as good. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to finish up. Listen, keep, make sure you're keeping the stir fry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's our breakdown of the preparatory approach and also just a lot of uh, chat about the shock absorber and why we believe that intergenerational ministry is, is a great way to express church. Um, thank you very much, Tim. Thank you, Stu, for joining us. I had a lot of fun today. That was a really good discussion, so thank you very much. Thanks, John. But as always, we like to finish up with a one-way. One way.